just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the podcast for speakers and professionals or anyone who wants to present with impact. Hosted by presentation persuasion coach John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, there couldn't be an easier way to get started than getting started with Buzzsprout. They have all the tools and resources you need for starting a podcast and getting out to all the major podcasting networks. Check out the link in the show notes and get your podcast started today. Well, welcome back to the show. And today I'm introducing, I think this is the first time on the show that I will have ever have spoken to someone from the police force in the United Kingdom. Now, he has served as an active police officer, still uh, still does carry out some duties, but now mainly works in the training section of that. But surprisingly, brought him in here not to talk about his work in the police force, but to talk about humour and comedy, because he also does some stand-up comedy. Now, something you generally don't expect. So please, welcome to the show. Uh, Mike Cox. If you want to find a dickhead, just go on the internet. Go to Facebook. Do you know who the worst people on Facebook are? I've worked this out. It's new parents. Oh, tedious fucking idiots. Do you know the worst thing they do? And you would have seen this status on your timeline. Can't believe my little one's six months old. <laughs> why? When did you have it? <laughs> oh, six months ago. Yeah, you're right. It's fucking weird, mate. Yeah, <laughs> where are these these assholes now? They're here. They've got jobs now. I've seen them. Right? I spotted one last year. I went on holiday. Right? I flew Ryanair. There was an arsehole on the booking counter, right? They said, did you pack this bag yourself, sir? <laughs> yeah, I did, mate, yeah. This is a 5.30am Ryanair flight to Tenerife, mate. What part of any of that suggests to you that I have staff? Mike, great to have you with us. Yeah, lovely to, uh, lovely to be here. Yeah, to take the, the day off to join you on your podcast. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. But tell us a little bit about your experience. What what takes you from working, first of all, what maybe took you into the police force, but then what took you from that into into comedy? Uh, Okay, well, I hope you're ready for a long story. Um, Basically, my life story goes pretty much like this. So I I always enjoyed comedy, like even at school, did comedy, um, played the comedic roles in like the dramas and stuff like that always envisaged long term would be something i'll be an actor i'll be a, be a comedian or something and then suddenly i left school i come from a tiny village don't know anybody 
who does anything remotely artistic or or you know everybody's just sort of working class and stuff so I ended up just following this route into full-time work uh was a forklift driver for a bit looking around for a bit of extra money ended up being a prison van driver listening to prisoners all day I ended up thinking well I'll go and try and be in the police force but always in the back of my mind thinking I wish I could do something with these pages of jokes that I've written I wish I could do something and it wasn't until 2009 I had an operation on my foot which ended up giving me a blood clot uh, I had a femoral embolism and they basically said oh you know you're lucky that it didn't kill you at any mm-hmm. point so uh I ended up having to spend a week in hospital. I wasn't allowed to move off the bed. I had injections in my stomach every day. And I thought, right, well, if I see through this, I'm going to start doing comedy. So uh, that's what I did in 2011. I eventually started. I did a course, actually, with uh, a lady called Jill Edwards. We runs a course in Brighton. She helps you sort of... I'll tell you what she does. It's almost like a shortcut. So, like, lots of people who don't do courses can still make it, obviously. But it sometimes takes them a little bit longer to learn the little tropes or or you know to learn what you can and can't say or how to even stagecraft stuff so i did that after i did the five minutes i never stopped gigging and um and now yeah i do uh big gigs run my own comedy club yeah that's fantastic and th- this is uh this is something that I've, I've talked to quite a few professional comedians now uh with with the series that i'm doing in my show and it's been interesting that Certainly a handful have been through some comedy courses. And, and I do think for anyone who's uh, even just wanting to work on being a bit more humorous, maybe for presentations, or for hosting, even if you're not wanting to be a stand-up comedian or you just want to challenge yourself, I think those courses could be really great and useful. I, I've been uh, thinking and looking at doing something like that myself to uh, to step things up a bit. Uh, but also interesting to speak to people who said, no, they didn't feel that they needed that. They just got started. They they were kind of ready to go up on stage. And it sounds like you could have gone out of the way. You had, you had a lot of material that were, you'd already been working on and writing stuff over time that you maybe could have just gone on, on a, a stand-up stage and just figured it out for yourself do you do you think that that would have happened if you if you had done that that you would have got there or did the course really make a big difference for you um i think that i probably would have got there because i think one of the things about comedy courses is that if you just don't have it in you there's not really a lot that can that can be taught to you uh because there are some people that can write great jokes but when it comes to standing there and delivering them there's just something missing so like you could, that course could help you uh, zone in on that creative um, skill that you have and help you write. But unless you can adapt and, you know, some people just cannot stand on stage and, and do that. And unless you have that in you, I don't think there's so much that a course can teach you. Yeah. But one of the good things I felt about, of course, like you said, sometimes not everybody who goes on these courses wants to be a stand-up. Sometimes, uh, I think there was a couple of guys that just on our course particularly that did... Um, public speaking and and training themselves and they just wanted to try and see if there was any way they could learn to inject humor or how to write a joke and and put it into their presentations there was a couple of guys who did that yeah Uh, and one again another advantage of it is yeah i feel like i probably would have been okay i think it would have probably taken me a lot longer to get to the level um that i did i think i uh like i say with the tropes that we uh, and the skills that the course teaches you you are able to sort of like leapfrog those that are still making those early mistakes that we were taught not to make. Yeah. So it does help you on that front. And it also what it does, it just puts you amongst people 
that are the same as you. I didn't grow up with anybody else who liked uh, comedy. I didn't grow up uh, with people that knew about comedy clubs or even ran one. So it was just perfect for networking. It suddenly put me in an environment or a community that I literally before had no access to. Yeah. Yeah, I can, can appreciate that. And did, did you, I mean, you mentioned about not everyone has that in them. Did you see that in the course as well? There were some people who are like, well, I mean, you can come and learn this stuff, but it's not really going to help you that much. Yeah, yeah I'm obviously not going to mention any names. No, of course. <laughs> but there, there is someone who was obviously so keen that really wanted it. And I think that they were hoping that the course would suddenly magic them into a, a completely different person. And obviously that just that, that never manifests itself. Like, sure. I think you have to either find a way to be comfortable with your awkwardness, which some comics actually do get away with. Um, but that's, I guess, probably the biggest trick, or well, I don't know if it's even a trick, but it's just one of the things you have to do in comedy, is you uh, either have to have a very, very good character and understand that character completely, or just accept who you are and make your comedy work for you. Mm. Well, that's been, some people... that's been an interesting topic that's come up with some of the comedians I've already been speaking with about this sort of stage character for comedy. Like some people are saying that they actually go into a particular character for their, for their routines, for their comedy stuff. And, and, uh, even your sister having a chat with someone who said, well, no, it's me, but it's uh, it's like a version of me. It's like a, a cleaned up, polished, heightened version of me that uh, you, know, you can put out to the put out to the public. What what would it be for you? What do you have a character that you adopt for your comedy, or is it really more of a, just a version of you? It's yeah, it's pretty much just a version of me. And when I think about it. Um, I, I still think there's probably perhaps a, a, a next level of confidence on my stage persona than I actually possess in real life. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not a completely different character. It's not my, those viewpoints that I say on stage are my viewpoints. Yeah. Um, and if, and if the, if I do give a viewpoint, that isn't my view. It's obvious that my point of view is sarcastic or I'm, you know, if I'm saying something is good when something's not good, it's obvious to the audience that I don't really think that. I'm just making a joke about it. Mm. So it's not difficult for me to write for that because it's what I think. Um, I always worry, not worry, but I think, uh, I'm, I guess I kind of admire those people that can write for a character that is nothing like them. So when you've got somebody who's like, yeah. like Al Murray, for example, right. he is nothing like the pub landlord. Sure. So to, to write the things that he does, I think shows a great skill in obs observing the type of people that you're, you're um, portraying. So he isn't this like, you know, sort of empire loving pub landlord. He's very educated. Yeah. But he's obviously so smart enough to observe and recognize some of those things in other people and, and put them into his comedy, which I think is amazing. I, I don't think I could write for a character that wasn't me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There are so many different styles of, of humour and comedy, and, and I guess everyone has to work with the one that they feel most suited to as well. How, how would you define your own style of, of humour and comedy? My own style is probably um, literally stories that have happened to me, my observations. I talk a lot about uh, my experiences. Currently, my set is full of stuff about my wife, my children. Um, it used to be about uh, weight loss as I was going through that process and 
uh, going to the gym with my brothers. It's all just experiences that I've had. Um, sometimes I'll add a little experience that perhaps did or didn't happen or, or you know, I'll add another line or uh, embellish a story that is true, but perhaps a story that ends up on stage isn't exactly how it happened. But m- most of my material, if not all of it, comes from a, a, a sort of place of truth. Yeah. Do, do you find then, you mentioned that you'd already written a lot of stuff before doing a comedy course or even taking to the stage, that you yeah. naturally find humour in daily life and that's something that you've keenly observed? Yeah, but it's probably not how I started off. I think when I was younger and I was just writing stuff down that I thought was funny, sometimes it would just be like, oh, isn't that a funny perspective or wouldn't that be funny if this happened? I mean, some of the material was what you might call hack, but then I was like, you know, sort of young man, teenager type age. Um, oh, I'd see something in the news and I'd go, oh, that's quite funny. Like, you know, what's my opinion on that? Uh, I find it very difficult to just look at a blank page and go, right, produce comedy. Mm-hmm. I have to sort of, yeah. So as I've got more into writing and doing comedy, now I'll look at something that's happened and go, oh, I think that'll work. Like I've got better at recognising something that I think will inevitably become stand-up with the right work. When I first started, it took me a long time to do that. I'd end up like trying to be funny with a joke or try and create a joke out of nothing. And I'd get so frustrated because I couldn't do it. And then the more, like every now and again I could, but I wasn't producing enough. I'm thinking, I'll never make it. And then I just got better at thinking, oh, that's just happened. That would be a great joke, that. And, and I think my, my take on this, not being a comedian myself, but... I do aim to be funny in some of my presentations a lot of the time. I like being playful at the very least. Is that the more you do that, the more you practice it, the more naturally it comes to you. Like you start to see those things more, or the the jokes or the humorous responses or takes on stuff start to become more habitual. Was that your experience too? Yeah, definitely. And it's yeah, it gets a lot quicker in identifying, but also quickly identifying exactly where in the storyline the joke is. When you're inexperienced. I think it's very easy to think, oh, that's the joke. But if you, you know, it's not always the first thing you think of because what you, the first thing you think of is probably what most people have already thought of. And it doesn't mm-hmm. separate your comedy away from anyone else's. So one of the rules people, I can't, well, maybe was it Tim Vine that said it? Or when I was starting out, I used to read a lot of books and stuff about it. And I would say never like, your punchline is never the first thing you think of. It's always the second or third thing. Always try and find that thing that is sort of different to what most people's immediate thoughts are. So you get better and quicker at doing that, like, like identifying, oh, there's the comedy. You know, where, where is this comedy? Is it punching up or down? Who is the butt of the joke? Uh, which I think people don't tend to think of, and that's why some comedy can be considered offensive, is that they haven't really thought about who is the punchline. Yeah. Right. You know, so sometimes, sometimes I see this sometimes where uh, people are sort of put on the spot to be to be funny and ends up just being insulting or offensive. But uh, like not everyone can quite get into that mindset straight away. It does maybe take a bit of practice. Some people, yeah, it does. I think more naturally attuned to it than other people, perhaps. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's interesting that not not everyone who I've spoken to has been uh, like was always the joke or always up. And certainly some people have been. But, you know, I am just yesterday speaking with uh, speaking with a, a guest on the show that's coming up as well about saying it's actually quite logical and, and formulaic and not, not stuff that you'd associate with comedy, but but then was able to apply those particular skills and his own traits into a style of humour that works for him. And it's, uh, yeah. 
the, everyone has their own different ways that they can bring humor into stuff. When, when it actually came to getting on a stage and performing, how, did, how was that for you? Uh, so my first experience of doing it, because um, I hadn't had a lot or any experience in, in stand-up before, my first gig was actually on a professional lineup. That basically, my wife was a booker. Uh, oh no, she, she worked at the place. She eventually became the booker. But at the time, she was, uh, it was at a university. She knew the person who booked it and knew that I was interested in comedy. And he said, oh yeah, I'll put you on. And I went, oh brilliant, I'll go and do it. Uh, and I went there with my material and I barely remember anything I said. I barely remember the experience. I just remember enjoying it. And it wasn't until I got to come to do comedy more. I look back at that and think, you were insane. Why on earth did you think you could go to your first ever gig on a professional lineup? With, and, and the lineup was um, Stuart Goldsmith, who has a comedy podcast. The headliner was um, Robert White, who came second on Britain's Got Talent. And I was there doing my five minutes of hack material and thinking it went great. And I just, like, if I'd have known what I knew now after the course, and someone said, do you want to do this gig? I'd have gone, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I was just my naivety and just like the desire to go and do it. I went, yeah, I'll just go and stand there amongst these, these experienced people and hope for the best. And it went okay. I didn't do another gig for a year afterwards. But um, I just think I wanted it so much that I, yeah. that, and although I was nervous, I just went and did it. So you, you didn't do another gig for a year afterwards. Was that because of the feedback from that or a realisation afterwards? Or, or was it just like, you know, it just, just didn't happen for a year afterwards? Yeah, so that's basically what led to the course, is I did the gig and I loved it. I thought, how do I do another one? I don't know. I, I literally don't know where an open mic is. I don't know anyone else who's going to one. What can I do? And I started looking through the internet, like, where can I go? And then I found the course and I thought, well, I'll definitely find the people that know where the gigs are and I'll definitely find other people that want to do them. So I'll just go and do that. And that's what led to the, the course, really. It was just I needed signposting to, to somewhere where sure. I could keep which, doing this thing. Which I think many people do in comedy and public speaking. You know, it's like the, the road from wanting to be a public speaker to actually becoming a public speaker and then to getting paid for public speaking is, is probably not too dissimilar. Uh, whilst there's no, not necessarily open mic nights as such for speakers, there are, there are platforms or, or venues where you can get to practice and do those things and, and uh, hone your craft. And certainly many courses available, which are probably a pretty good thing for, for most people to do. Like, certainly some people... Yeah. You know, so people maybe who are a bit more extroverted who already think in those sorts of terms can more easily get on a platform and, and talk about just about anything. But even then, learning some of the tools of the trade or the, the ins and outs of how to do stuff uh, and what works and what doesn't work and some of the things like you know, comedy is all the big one is the rule of three, right? And, uh, thing, yeah. and understanding how things contrast and landing a, a joke is all stuff that really can um, take time to craft. When it comes to creating material, you say you observe stuff from, from daily life, but if you're actually putting together a set, where do you start and how do you go about developing that? Um, so uh, when I'm writing new material, the way I basically do it is I'll, I'll have an idea. So I'll make an observation or something. Uh, I'll probably normally put a note in my phone. Uh, and then when I... It, material sort of comes in two or three different ways. I've had jokes where they just appear and I think oh, that is, that's ready to go. That's good to go, that joke. And I'll, if I'm doing a gig, I'll perhaps drop it in in the middle of the set. Uh, if I'm confident enough, I think it's good to go and see how it lands. Uh, sometimes I'll get an idea that I think, I think there's something funny there. 
and I'm confident enough I can make it work, I'll stick it in the middle of my set and hope that maybe I'll like say something and I'll just say it in a way that's funny or I'll find the punchline on stage. Uh, and then there's other times I get an idea and I will stare at it forever. And I'll be every now and again, I've got a minute, I'll look at it and go, I know there's something here, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes I'll go and find an open mic night near me where I can do some new material and I'll just read the ideas off a book. I'll just like get my notebook out and go, so these are the ideas I had that I'm not entirely sure what to do with. Let's just see if something happens in front of this like audience where there's no pressure. They're, you know, they're forgiving, they're expecting things to be tried out on them. Um, so they're the sort of three stages I do it. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It's not not like necessarily just a prescribed method, but there's uh, different different aspects of it to to consider and put yeah. together. But do you do you keep a journal of things that you just like uh, things you've observed that you find funny that you might have come back to you later to pull on for for material? Yeah, so pretty much all of my ideas initially end up as a phone note, and then uh, I don't think I've got them to hand really, but I've got three notebooks, uh, and one of them is. Uh, pretty much just when I go to a gig, I'll write down the set list that I did at the gig um, just to get it set in my mind. Uh, and then I've got another book where I literally just scribble everything down. Um, so if I'm going to do like a new material night, I'll write the entire set of all the key points in it. So um, I can put it out on the table. And then if I get stuck, I can look and go, oh, I really wanted to talk about that. If a joke is more fully formed, there'll be a bit, few more notes for me to remember and look at. And if a joke is literally just an idea, it'll just be a title. And yeah. then I'll try and make it work on that. So, yeah, I'll keep those notebooks. And then um, there'll also just be a notebook where which is kind of a mixture of the two. So, like, if I'm doing a gig where um, I'm going to mix the two up, I'll write down just the titles of, like, jokes that are old. And then I'll title the jokes I want to try that are more fully formed. And then I'll... It's mostly, yeah. So there's one that's got a lot of work in it and then two that are mostly set lists as a reminder. Yeah. And uh, at what point for you do you feel like uh, a joke or a story is ready to go into into your set? Um, so I kind of just, I don't know if it sounds well, but I just kind of know. Like, I, it, it, it will come into my mind or I'll, sometimes it will just be a conversation I've had with someone and it already sounds like stand-up. So it's got that sort of swift set-up, punchline, set-up, punchline, like, it sounds like it, it would work already. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think of an example that I have. Um, so there was a, so at the moment I'm closing my set with um, a bit about, um, you know, when people cold call you uh, with PPI or if you've been in a car accident, that type of stuff. And uh, at the time I was just, um, as lots of people do, I would just wind the people up on the phone. They phone you up and you say, have you been in an accident? I would just string them along. And I remember telling somebody that that's what I was doing. And while I was telling that's what I was doing, I noticed that people were listening to me. And then a couple of people were laughing at things I've done. I thought, oh, this is, this is actually a stand-up joke. It's good to go. So I literally tried it that evening as I told it, and it just worked straight away. Cool. So Whereas there's this other bit that I've been trying, which is about an observation I made about the end of the movie Sully, uh, about the guy who crashed the plane on the Hudson. Right. And there's yeah. something amusing in the idea that right at the end credits, there's a bit about how uh, they meet up every year, don't they? 
I don't know if you've ever watched the film, but in the credits, they, he shows that they, him and the passengers meet, yeah, they meet up once a year to have like some sort of um, commemoration of the thing. And I just made this observation about how uh, that would be one reason why I wouldn't have saved the plane is that I don't want to have to meet up every year with a bunch of strangers that I don't like. Now, I've tried to make that work so many times, but there's just something about the idea that I'd allow a plane crash that people I'm not happy with. So I have to kind of just leave that alone. Yeah, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny, I actually did uh, a show recording a while back with uh, with an agent who represents him because he does public speaking stuff now. So. Okay. But I haven't actually seen the film, but I can appreciate that. I can appreciate the desire not to have to attend those reunions, much like school reunions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, rather rather be avoided. For for in the, the work environment you do, do, do the uh, people you work with in in the police force know what you do for the comedy? Yeah, so um, I have to register it as a business interest um, yeah. because obviously, as a working police officer, they they need to have a bit of a knowledge and a say on what you're doing outside and whether or not it's an appropriate thing for uh, essentially a representative of the crown to be doing um i don't actually talk about it so this podcast is the first time anyone will have ever heard that mike cox comedian is actually a police officer right um so yeah i never talk about it and the main reason i don't talk about it on stage is that kind of two things and it is an impact that i've had on my life is when you tell people that you're a police officer two things happen do not want to talk to you anymore because they've just got this inherent hatred for authority or they don't want to know anything about you as a person anymore. They only want to know about the dead bodies you've seen. No, really? <laughs> yeah. And then it makes it a bit, so my fear would be, it makes it a bit more difficult for me to go like, hey, this is one of the jokes I've written about my mundane life. And everyone's like, tell me about the bodies. Uh, well, I guess it shouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I used to work for... Uh, for a very well-known airline company and uh, as cabin crew and uh, uh, and I had a, a neighbor a couple used to live like, live next door to us who uh, they were obsessed with death like, they were the kind of people who went to funerals that they just people they didn't know who they were signing papers not to they're trying oh, to wow. get anything but they they were completely obsessed with death and one time she's just randomly asking me on the doorstep uh, whether I've ever had anyone die on the plane and what we do with the bodies <laughs> playing when they die oh great this is something i really don't want to talk about um yeah yeah but it doesn't it's not too surprising some people are really obsessed with that stuff and uh yeah i, I guess it's not really what you want to spend your time on and it doesn't really naturally lead into no. uh, a comedy set for you although you could probably find some humor there as well right yeah well there's a comedian um, called alfie moore who was the police sergeant in humberside he's got radio four series and uh and that's really his sort of USP. So I don't really want to be treading on his toes. He's already sort of completely cornered that market. And it's not really a market I'm interested in. I don't, I mean, I feel more as being a police officer is something I do, not something that I am. Like it's my job. I feel like I am a comedian who mm. currently has to pay for his life by being a policeman. <laughs> like that, that, that's how I feel, because obviously comedy doesn't make a great deal of money, certainly not in the last six months but um sure. where i've been i know over the last six months seven months with covid i've certainly been more glad that i never took that leap to go full-time comedy mm, yeah yes i mean for for me as being uh, uh 
boon to some degree uh, you know it's, uh, taking advantage of other people's misery but uh, um there's so many comedians have been around to come and have conversations with me on a podcast because yeah. there's not so many bookings coming in so you know fortunate for me i've been able to to make use of that but uh, i can appreciate that it's uh, it's been a tough time for a lot of comedians with uh, yeah. but not many live gigs and, and things like that going on but you know fortunately you know it's not the only thing you have available to you to, yeah. to bring in the money in conversation we had before, you, you were telling me that mostly what you do now is in, in the area of training as well. Yeah. And, and I can see as, as someone who does training and, and public speaking stuff, that there there could be a lot of opportunity to bring, that could be very beneficial to bring humour into what you do there. Do you, do you find that you end up doing that? Yeah, I think it's difficult for me not to do that. I think because I, whenever I'm stood in front of a room of people now, instinctively I just want to go, right, I need a laugh, I need a laugh. So sometimes reining it in is difficult. Um, one of the things that I think separates me from the other trainers is that I am able to inject appropriate humour uh, in lessons, even some lessons where you wouldn't think there was any or should be any, um, which I think is, I don't know, that blowing smoke up my own butt, but there is, a, I think, the skill I've learned over the last sort of nine years, ten years doing comedy is that uh, I have learnt where the joke is and where is appropriate, whereas inexperienced people might just go like, you know, look for that easy laugh, whereas yeah. that, that's where you're more likely to get in trouble. You know, it has to be appropriate, it has to be a place in the appropriate place. Um, you have to know the audience, which again is the benefit of what I do at the minute is where the information of, of the students and their background is available to me. So I get to know whether or not there is something that I should or shouldn't be talking about before I go in there. Yeah. So I'll know whether there's somebody will be triggered by something in particular and whether or not it's appropriate for me to make a joke, which is a huge advantage that you never get in any other environment. Right. And, and a sense of propriety, especially in a professional situation, I think is, is essential. It would be like if you, uh, if you start, if you went to a, a conference on women's empowerment and started telling mother in mother-in-law jokes or stuff, it's just it's yeah. not going to go down well. It's not going to fit well with with the environment. You have to have stuff that's appropriate and hopefully stuff that's funny as well. But in in the yeah. learning environment, it is a great thing. I think it's a great thing to bring in humour because, especially if you're training on something that's not all that interesting if it or if it's data heavy mm -hmm. or it's just kind of dry and um, that you can bring in those elements first is going to make it more memorable but also that like most professional training environments where people have been sent into a training room they don't want to be there so so mm -hmm. some to some degree that there's resistance between the trainer and the the students if you like that uh that has to be broken through and, and humor is a great way to build rapport, build connection and, and break that down and uh, yeah. have everyone at least having a, a more pleasant experience of like, oh yeah, that wasn't so bad, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, the other trick with stuff, like you say, people don't want to be there, but everybody knows that somebody in that room doesn't want to be there. So similar to comedy, there's always a thing about addressing the elephant in the room. Right. So one of the things I'll always do is I'll go like, I'll, I'll, make sure that everyone is aware that i know some of you don't want to be here but we'll get through it together like you're not it's not just me i'm not the only one in this room enjoying it we we will as a unit get through this day and then like us and then i hopefully by then injecting some humor somewhere they'll go oh, you know this isn't going to be as bad as i thought uh i'll try to engage a bit more uh 
um, it's not going to be the same sort of front-loaded, uh, PowerPoint-driven training that I was expecting. Yeah, which is a good thing, I think. And uh, again, changes expectations and hopefully opens people up more to, to learning and experience. It's interesting to me that you mentioned about in those situations, you have an idea of who's in the room and what's going to be appropriate and, and what should best be avoided. But on on the stage in your own performance work, you don't know that. You don't know who's in your audience, really. Maybe you have some sense of it, but you don't have that level of detail for sure. Is there stuff that for you is just out of bounds, is just not funny and, and you just don't joke about that? Or, or is it... Uh, it's up for grabs, but, um, you know, you tread within a certain area. Yeah, I, I, I'm a strong believer in that you, uh, that nothing should be off limits. Like every, anything can be joked about, but it has to be joked about the right way. Mm. Um, so, like, there are some comics that will talk about cancer, uh, and most people go, oh, I'm not talking about that. I think you can, but it has to be, uh, you have to look at what is the joke, who is the punchline. If somebody's got a story about how cancer affected them and it's funny, then by all means, you should be able to say it. But nobody should be standing there on stage and pointing at somebody who's got cancer and laughing. Like that, sure. like, whenever I write anything, I always think to myself, would I be happy saying that to the person who this might affect with just me and them in the room? And if they were to challenge me, could I explain to them why I said it and, and bring them back round? Like, if you ever got any concerns, like... Uh, Sometimes you might think, oh, nobody will be in the room about that joke, I can do it. And you'll do it, and everyone's laughing, and you think it's fine. But there might be one person that affects who's just keeping their head down. And I don't ever want to trigger anybody to be upset by anything that I would have said. Even though, like, I do a joke about, I, I don't, I'm, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. Uh, and I do a, a joke about my opinions on God. Um, I don't mean for it to be offensive. And uh, if you believe in God, then 100% you do whatever you want to do. And the joke is literally about my opinion. And at no point do I try to convince other people that my opinion is right or, or say that you're an idiot. It's just me expressing my... It's basically my observation on what religious people do, like they're praying. And yeah. essentially it's me. I just think it's your own time you're wasting. Like, people laugh at that, but that's not me laughing at religious people. You know, I, I actually hope that they're right. <laughs> I just don't think that they are. And that's my, my opinion. But I, I would be happy to sit there in a room. I went to a Catholic high school. Uh, I went to Church of England Primary School. I've been around religious people, and I feel confident enough that I would be able to explain why I said that and that they wouldn't be that bothered about what I'd said. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I, I'm, an, I'm an atheist as well, and, and grew up in a very religious environment. But I, I, I went. I definitely went through a phase of like from the leaving religion side of things, where I actually, I think, I was intentionally offensive to uh, to people who were religious, and I became a bit of an asshole about it. Uh, to yeah. to get to the point where I realised, actually, you know, I need need to stop that. It's like it's, it's not good. It's not helpful. It doesn't actually open things up for discussion. I'd much rather talk to people and respect and, and remind myself. I once used to believe in all this stuff. Did I think I was an idiot then? It's like no, I wasn't. Yeah. I may have been. I may not think I was wrong, but it's like how would I have felt then if somebody was that offensive? I probably would double down 
more than anything else and, uh, <laughs> and stick to your guns because that's what people tend to do. Um, but, you know, you del deliver that kind of material somewhere like the US, which is a very heavily religious country, um, even just yeah. saying that you're an atheist could turn a lot of the audience against you. Although yeah. someone like um, Jim Jeffries would be an example of someone who's sort of been quite prominent in that area. Although even him, like being in the US now, has toned, toned down that side of his his act and yeah. sort of mellowed about the, the religious side of stuff. But it, it's interesting. I don't think there's any issue in, in the UK with saying, saying that you are it's not, not such a heavily religious country and, and most people yeah. who uh, profess to being C of E or Catholic whatever aren't really practicing anyway. It's like, well, yeah, we had to do that to have the wedding in the church kind of thing. Um, yeah. More a lot of that. But, but it's always interesting that they, those sorts of things can come up. And But I think if you approach it the right way, Nobody has to be offended about, about it. You can find humour in there where it's like people say, yeah, that's kind of true and I can see the funny side of it and, and it, it will be all right. But um, it, it's interesting that there are comedians around who, um, who sort of feel like they're, they're going to push that boundary. And I think Ricky Gervais might be an example of that. Just like, I know this is going to trigger and offend people, I'm going to push it because maybe being triggered and offended by it is something that you need to work on and figure out. Uh, like, why are you being so triggered and offended by this? And, you know, let, let's, let's get you triggered and offended. Um, I'm a bit uncertain about how that, how that works as comedy. I mean, do you, do you have thoughts on, on that kind of style of humour? Yeah, I do. I think Ricky Gervais is a good example of that, actually. Uh, Jimmy Carr a little bit as well. Because yeah. I think that sometimes their sets can be like, like you say, it's it's something offensive that creates debate, and like you think, oh well, you know, sh should we be laughing? Should we be laughing? And there's a bit there that gets you to think about it, and then I find that in that desire to just try and find those offensive things, I think sometimes they can be guilty of just writing an offensive joke, and there's no more debate other than that you've said something you probably shouldn't have said. Yeah. Like. That, and that's it. There's nothing more to it than that. And I'm not particularly impressed by jokes like that. We just think, oh, you've just said something offensive, and because you're, you are who you are, you're getting away with it. That that, that doesn't start, um, as as particularly clever or or you know funny or anything like that. It's just it's one of those jokes that if you heard somebody on an open mic circuit say it, they'd be booed off. But because somebody's got themselves this reputation that they say offensive things, we kind of just go, oh, that's just something that they say. Well, certainly those things don't seem to pass without some criticism from, from certain corners. And whether you take that as being people are being uh, PC or whether it's just cancel culture and stuff like that, you know, I think people, yeah. people tend to write it off. But, you know, there is, there is a great degree to, to which I see, you know, feel with like a lot of things that are going on at the moment, this idea of we, we shouldn't be trying to wrap everyone up in cotton wool from you know, this sort of idea of, being perpetually offended like being offended is yeah. a choice it's not yeah. something you naturally are but i think if someone's just setting out to be mean um perhaps we shouldn't be celebrating that uh, and, and yeah, maybe yeah. maybe we should be um they take i think more than anything treating it perhaps as a teachable moment but there i do see some some cleverness with some with certain comedians uh, so maybe uh, i come back to jim, jim jeffries like some of the stuff that he talks about you know he doesn't actually believe the stuff he's saying, but he's kind of saying it because he, he's challenging the uh, challenging the thing of people being offended about. Him. Why are you really getting offended about this? And uh, and maybe getting offended about it isn't the best thing to be doing, is that? But actually, 
uh, like you said, sparking the discussion about it, which is that is a very different approach. But sometimes, yeah. sometimes very clever. But a lot of people just can't tell the difference between someone who's sort of saying this stuff and is like, well, that may not actually be his opinion. He's just you know, putting stuff into the uh, public floor that uh, that he wants to uh, wants to challenge some perceptions, challenge reactions to things. It's uh, it's an interesting area, but comedy offers a lot of uh, possibilities in in this area to to discuss stuff that we actually don't really discuss generally. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think comedy is it's going down this sort of dangerous road where people are expecting a bit more from comics than they should be. Like fundamentally, the entire job is to uh, before you put a comedian on television or or you know to give them a radio show. It's literally to be in a club and make those people in the room laugh. And something that might work in that room that night might not work the next night, wouldn't maybe translate to television. Uh, and sometimes when people, comedians are talking politically about stuff, they're making jokes. No one's out there to make a statement or change the world. And I think sometimes because comedians do have a platform, people are, and they say things, people are saying, expecting them to behave like role models, perhaps like politicians and stuff. And it's, I've seen on some occasions some comics are being held to account more than the prime minister is over things that they've said. Yeah. And that just blows my mind. Like, if anyone on the planet should be saying stuff that perhaps is risque and we and make mistakes, it's stand-up comics. Yeah, I mean, um, Kathy Griffin in the US would be a good example of that, right? I mean, uh, yeah. she was absolutely ripped to shreds over that just one photograph that she did that clearly wasn't uh anything really all that serious but um yeah. it was making a making a statement and and it was more of a metaphor but the the idea that all these people i think a lot of that was just fake offense as well from the, uh, yeah. the sort of right wing over there of like like it didn't even look real but but it's going to yeah. scare people or people thinking that she actually wants to um you know, wants to murder the president and so that's like I don't think anyone in their right mind ever thought that, but she actually ended up getting investigated. And it, but it became yeah. this huge, big distraction from other stuff that was going on. And I think that's sometimes what this allows with the way media is set up these days and the way politicians were. Anything that actually distracts from other stuff that they don't, want, don't really want people focusing on too much, they're going to throw all the attention and throw the spotlight onto that instead. And I think that's a lot of why these things end up happening and uh, focusing on like a, a few small voices that are complaining about something as if everyone's complaining about this. The internet is up in arms. Like the internet doesn't give a shit. It's just like a handful of people who are who are whining online, but we're going to put yeah. the spotlight on them and say too much of that happens. But it, it, but it's interesting, like you say, uh, comedians being held to higher accounts often than than the people who are in high office in in, uh, in the public world. It's uh, a fascinating area. Comedy is, uh, to me, one of the most powerful tools of influence, uh, maybe not in a, not always in a political sense, but in terms of being able to create poor people. Um, I've I spent a lot of time reading and studying things like tools of influence and persuasion. And one of the ones that doesn't really get talked about nearly enough, I think, is, is humour and comedy. What do you feel about, uh, about comedy as a tool for influence and persuasion? Uh, I feel, um, I'm certainly just going back to sort of teaching my lessons, I do find that people are more engaging with you when you show, I think, because I think when you're humorous, 
or when you bring in humor, you show a human side. So you can create a connection with the audience that is missing when you're just, when you're just in with you these are my stories i'm exposing showing myself to you we're the same mike i, I uh, lost you i lost you for a moment there can can you could you uh start the start your answer again sorry yeah of course yeah um yeah so just going back so uh humor as an influence i think is uh something i've noticed in when i'm teaching uh, i've seen that when the the person who is teaching or the trainer is less engaging and all, there isn't as much humor. You, you can visually see the disconnect in the room where I think humor allows you to sort of show a bit of yourself to the audience and invite them in. And then when you've done that, that uh, and you've created that human connection, you'll find that people listen to what you're saying more. And then those that are invested in you, uh, they perhaps, I don't know, feel like they know you, they recognize a bit of themselves in you. I'm more likely to listen and take on board what you're saying. So that power of just using humor has a much larger effect on, on uh, or an impact on the people listening to you. Yeah. I, I feel that um, stories have a very powerful effect on people generally, whether they're humorous or not. But, but humorous stories particularly can be very useful. And, and most people have them, but uh, they maybe don't even realize that they have them. Or we don't always recognize where our stories in our life are actually interesting or, or humorous. Uh, and um, the, com the conversation I've had with some professional storytellers and with some comics and, and other professional speakers as well about um, about storytelling as, as part of uh, an art form, I guess, uh, but definitely as a tool of influence and persuasion, that, um, again, one that can be used very well for all sorts of different things, with good things and bad things, but we but we buy into stories. We live our lives around stories and we all have these stories ourselves and we need to sometimes find them in ourselves. But I think that can be a very great, uh, maybe easier way for people to get started and bring some, some gentle humor, if you like, or even sometimes some stronger humor into a presentation of some, some mm -hmm. kind. And do you feel that as a, as a professional comedian now, like some elements of that is also being a professional storyteller, that you have developed your ability to tell stories as well. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you, uh, and I, the best example of using storytelling in humor uh, from when training. So for example, yesterday morning, I was teaching sudden death and how we as police officers respond to, when, to people who have died. And uh, again, it's quite a macabre subject and people take it seriously. So what I did is I injected this, a story from my experience of when I dealt with a dead body that was actually quite so it's a pretty funny story uh, just to get people again just to like you know we are as one we are all we all going to do the same job we've all been the horrible stuff we all use humor to cope with these horrible things so I told the story um, which is about the first dead body I ever dealt with on the job it was a chap who died in the bath and he was uh, overweight and we had to lift him out of the bath. And as we lift him out of the bath, my friend, uh, who was also new to the job, had to put a strap under his naked butt. And as we lifted him out, the dead man's uh, penis was right in his face. And then obviously we all started laughing. And because we're laughing, the body's shaking, which is obviously they're making the, the willy shake in his face, which is making it worse. So we're, 
we're telling the story of how we had to do uh, had to do that, and then suddenly people are laughing and going, "Oh, do you know what? I, I can relax into this lesson a little bit now." And yeah. I just went and told that story about how that transpired. Um, I haven't ever told that story on stage because I'm obviously trying to keep it separate. But you recognise the stories that will uh, improve the experience of people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so storytelling is such a profound skill, and I, within my within my podcast show, I have a, a series that is uh, more specifically about storytelling as well but it's uh it certainly crosses into so many other areas of life as well but uh, sometimes it's yeah. good to have episodes that are specifically on that but it often comes up especially when we're talking about comedy and humor too i think yeah. comedians have uh, a unique challenge sometimes that most professional or public speakers don't have at least of of hecklers is that something you you had the pleasure of experiencing in your stand-up career yeah, I've had hecklers, yeah. I don't tend to get that many. I think because uh, my stage persona probably doesn't invite it too much. So I'm six foot one, quite big guy. Uh, I talk with my, the accent that I have. And people tend to think, oh, I'm not going to be too Larry. I think he can handle it. If I, if I go into a room that is already a little bit chopsy, I will always address straight away that I'm, I'm not going to be having any nonsense off anyone. Uh, it's almost a bit like, I don't know if you've ever seen the clip, it was a, it's a Bernie Mac clip uh, when he did Death Comedy Jam and the, the room was notoriously like, it booed off three or four of the other comics. And the first thing he did when he come on is like, I ain't scared of you. And it's the mother effers, I'm not scared of you. And straight away they're like, ah, oh, respect him. So I kind of adopted that type of thing. Like I walk in the room and go, I'm not having it. Like I'm a couple of the loud people I watch on the side, I'll, I'll say something about them and go up, you know, put them in their place a little bit in the hope to discourage it but then yeah I've had hecklers before I think some people just feel like incorrectly so but they feel like that heckling is part of the experience mm. so they'll go like they think that's what they're supposed to do when they come to a gig so they'll just shut out thinking that they're enhancing the evening but they're not but yeah I've had my fair share and you just yeah. got to try and react quickly to it I get different different feedback from different people about how how they handle that, and it's something I'm fascinated about because I I were I remember reading a book a little while ago. And I forget the author's name now, but he's like a professional, more of a professional after dinner speaker, which is probably somewhere really in between stand up and public speaking. Really, it's yeah. like yeah, it's somewhere in between where you actually might end up getting heckled, and this guy actually did end up getting heckled at a quite high profile event by a professional comedian um, and he was talking about having like he had some stuff kind of prepared like he, he and was recommending for people in those sorts of environments it can be really good to have stuff prepared whereas other comedians I've spoken to uh, some have said that they have stuff prepared ready to that but others have said actually no it's better to deal with it at in the moment or perhaps use actually utilize what's going on or let your audience take care of it if it's in the right kind of uh, situation as well yeah. what, what's what is your thought or methodology on that uh so i don't have stock put downs i always rely on the fact that i feel like i can deal with what anyone said there is every now and again there is an occasion where you might use a stock line where if somebody shouts something out and you say, what did you say? And they'll repeat it and the room's dead. You just highlight the fact that that silence is their fault. <laughs> like, you did that. And then you'll get a laugh and you go, I did that. But that's the difference. <laughs> uh, 
which is a nice way of handling it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Sean Walsh did one before where he basically got the entire room to tell that one person to shut their mouth uh, and obviously then puts them in their place. Um, there's yeah. not a lot you can do with drunk people that, that just will not shut up. They tend to have to be removed. I've had a couple of those where uh, the worst part is when you've said something and it's absolutely brilliant and a half sensible person would have gone, I've just been absolutely done there. Where somebody drunk just like they carry on and it's just completely wasted an absolute killer line. They, they just have to be taken out. Mm. But yeah, I kind of just rely on, uh, on my immediate reaction to dealing with them. Um, I've also got uh, a bit of material that I can do, uh, which is basically about idiots. Uh, and I have this idea that health and safety has ensured the survival of people that normally would have just seen themselves off. They'd be dead. Yeah. Uh, and, but as a caring society, we've ensured the survival of bellend and now they're everywhere. And then I'll go, they'll even turn up to your gig. And I'll, I'll always put it back on them that these people are morons. And I've got a whole string of jokes that I'll do, which will constantly always make that person the punchline. Right. Yes, but perhaps we should stop, stop putting safety instructions on the back of a bottle of bleach kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Um, well, yeah, I, I think that's a theory I've shared for, for quite some time. And uh, yes, yeah, some, some people uh, deserve, deserve Darwin Awards and, and amazingly some of them are mentioned to survive crazy stuff that they probably would have been yeah. better off not surviving. But I can see yeah. there's, a lot, there's a lot of humor there. There's a lot of comedy too. Um, the, the hacking stuff is interesting. I mean, I feel like a lot of public speakers and professionals, uh, and I certainly felt this to some degree myself when I was starting out, have that fear of being challenged, maybe not heckled so much, but of being challenged by the audience mm. or um, having someone saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Stuff that really, apart from very exceptional circumstances with incredibly weird people that you might rarely come across, it's not, not really something that most professional speakers or even non-professional speakers are actually going to encounter or very likely to encounter. But in the comedy world, it's it's kind of a regular thing I guess maybe not every gig but something that you do need to be prepared for and uh, uh, I always find interesting as well the, the idea of flexibility and improvisation on the stage like, um, I feel again that's something you get better at Imp improvisation becomes better the more you practice it which yeah. almost, seems, almost seems wrong but it's like okay just get better at having that kind of flexibility are there times where you have to kind of suddenly switch a direction or stuff isn't landing so you start moving more to, to improvising something else in or some other other stuff you've got that wasn't quite what you planned yeah so there, there is an occasions where um whether it's something wrong with the room or uh so i'll, I'll give you a good example of something that happened like that i uh did a gig in halifax uh and I was um, opening for, for a, a tour show and most of the audience were there to watch the main act and I'd probably say 90% of the room were okay with me warming, warming them up and talking to them. 10% were not interested whatsoever. Uh, and you find them uh, disinterested, they might chat uh, and you're trying to like do your material uh, and it's not landing because people are aware that people are not listening. Um, people are aware that something awkward is happening and I should be addressing it. 
So they tend to then, they stop listening and laughing, they're distracted. So you have to basically just abandon all your intended material and now focusing on what the issue is. Uh, so it's almost like I mentioned earlier on in our chat, we were talking about um, addressing the elephant in the room. If there's something in there that everybody has noticed, you have to notice it too and talk about it. So then I started to talk about this, the group that were in disinterested, try to bring them in, try and chat to them and try and find some comedy in, in them. Uh, turns out they were monstrously aggressive. <laughs> they hated me completely. But that's the thing I had to do. I had to change tack and think, right, what can I do with you? Is there any way of rescuing this for everybody else? Uh, and again, yeah, they were just, they didn't like me. So but this is a good example of when I used that material about um, health and safety and stuff. I basically wasn't planning on doing that material, but I did it so that I could show to everybody else in the room, I am still in control. They haven't affected me. Everybody just stay calm. Like you can trust me. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. That's an important element. And uh, that's just as true in speaking, training, comedy of having control of the room. Like you have to, you have to be able to have gain control and keep control and bring it back. If you start, if, if, if that gets challenged or someone starts to take, uh, take that away, away from you as well. And uh, yeah, so it's it's an important thing. But again, I think like many things in this area, you learn more of those things naturally from doing it than you could probably ever really be taught. You just have to get up and do it and get skilled at it. And, and you will find the, you know, the flexibility and the, um, the thing that you'll know where you need to go after time, especially maybe after having had a few experiences where, where you don't manage yeah. it. Uh, but those are often the ones that we learn the most from. Um, who who for you in the comedy world are the people who perhaps you most most look up to or admire? Uh, I've got several. Um, Bill Burr is probably one of my favourites, an American comedian. Um, he, uh, going back to what we mentioned earlier on about stuff that may cause offence, he talks a lot about stuff like that. Um, but I feel like what he says is really well thought out and he could defend his viewpoint if challenged. So I really like what he does. Uh, I think Kerry Godleyman is an amazing stand-up. I don't know if you've ever seen her. You might have seen her in stuff that she's acted in. She was in um, uh, Derek, where she played the nurse at the nursing home, Ricky Gervais' drama. And she was also in his new one on Netflix, um, Afterlife, where she plays the wife that passed away. Uh, yeah, she's an unbelievable stand-up. Um, who else do I like? I, all like I, I like Mickey Flanagan. I just like working-class comics. I don't tend to see that many of them. Yeah. Um, some specials I've enjoyed recently Judah Friedlander on Netflix if you ever get a chance to watch that or uh, Jade Adams is one on uh, Amazon Prime I think she's brilliant um, she's got a special called Serious Black Jumper which I recommend to anyone she's, again she's a sort of working class comic from Bristol uh, and obviously being working class myself I think those are the sort of comics I tend to uh, look out for because again it's a viewpoint that isn't exactly well represented Okay. Mm, yeah. What 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 are the best or worst things about being a stand-up comedian from your perspective? Uh, the best is the twenty to twenty-five minutes you're getting laughs and on stage and people are loving it. That's the best. The worst part is the perhaps the two and a half hours travel it took you to get to do that twenty minutes before you then travel the two and a half hours back again. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. The, the road can be a bit lonely, but um, the payoff when you've had a good gig. Like it just doesn't just makes you completely forget about the travel and potential loneliness. 
is is work starting to come back now or, or is it still a still a way off? Yeah, people are getting a bit more braver now putting gigs on in places before the pandemic. Most of the places I've gigged in in the last six to eight weeks before COVID-19, you would never have dreamed of doing comedy. If somebody said, do you want to do comedy in this field? You'd have gone, no, I'm not doing that. That is a guaranteed death. But yeah. now, like, uh, because there's nothing else, audiences are so keen to just get out of their house and they're, they're so forgiving uh, of the fact that perhaps the circumstances, the environment is not 100%. Most of the ones I've done have just been lovely. Like, it's just felt more and more as, we, as we're going felt more like returning back to how it felt to do a comedy club. Nice. Even though it's like a pub garden or a sideless marquee or something like that. Yeah, a bit different, but you know, with, with adaptation maybe comes new opportunities and, and new, new ad- adaptations that make things different. Um, yeah, I think not- that's the good thing, I think, uh, because I think people are realising that some of these environments that would have not been good for comedy are actually not so bad after all. Uh, and if the audience have the right mindset and the comic have the right mindset that, that we can make this uncomfortable and unusual environment work, I don't see why it should go away. I think in the summer in this country, everybody loves sitting in a pub garden. So if you can put comedy in it, which we never did before, there's no reason why they shouldn't go away. And then when comic, comedy clubs come back, run them alongside. There's no reason why one should be prevalent over the other. Yeah, so sometimes the, the things you do to adapt just make things interesting or different enough to offer some new opportunities or at least change the experience in a way that might yeah. be positive. And if I'm for the public speaking club that I attend, like we've been meeting throughout the summer. We're, we're actually, other, other, when we moved past meeting online for a while, which which was okay, actually, um, we wanted to start meeting in person again, like most people do. And there's a, here in Valencia, where I live, there's a, a park that has a, a wooden amphitheater in it. And so we decided that that could be a good place, like an open air wooden amphitheater. And um, so we, we started meeting there for a while. But what we hadn't taken into account was it, it's one of the places where all these people who go and do their exercise outside like to go and do it. So there's yeah. we have probably about 10 different exercise classes, people run, running up and down the steps or uh, um, doing uh, step exercises uh, on particular levels. And so, uh, there was so much going on there that we ended up competing with that. But that was interesting. But again, the, the opportunity for us was do, do, giving presentations and talks with a lot of distractions going on that you might actually sometimes find yourself in an environment where there's a lot of distraction and you have to keep going and get yourself focused on what you're doing so even then whilst this wasn't ideal um it was a great opportunity to to practice something that you might not otherwise uh, get the chance to practice and of course having to listen more intently to people but uh, yeah it was interesting thankfully we're able to start moving inside again now with, with restrictions yeah that uh that we can start <laughs> being a bit more intent on, on what yeah. we're actually there to do if if someone was to come to you and say you know i'm doing a presentation i'm doing a talk and i'd like to add a little bit of humor to it at least not necessarily a whole stand-up set but what advice could you give to someone to to help them make a presentation or talk a, a little bit more humorous uh, uh my first major piece of advice is don't try too hard I think some people can try so much to try and put comedy in uh, that it feels forced or the jokes aren't natural, they don't necessarily work, the, 
it's all clunky. I think if you're going to have some humour in the, in it, like let it be natural. So, you know, is there something that's happened to you uh, or you're an experience that is a funny anecdote that has a suitable place in it? And um, if you're not doing stand-up set, there is no requirement for you to be dishing a joke out every 30 seconds. You know, people will listen two, three, four minutes and then you can have a laugh and then go, <laughs> yeah, that's funny, right, let's listen to the next piece of information. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be so heavy. Just feel comfortable in, in that two or three minutes of not getting a laugh. That's not what you're there to deliver. I think that's what I would probably say. And just yeah. let it come naturally, yeah. Just try to inject a bit of your own personality, your own experience in. Uh, and I, I would probably, you know, if I was to assist somebody with that, I'd go like, right, talk me through your presentation. All right, and then I think you can feel a little bit where you go, right, well, have you got any experience in that? Tell me about something that's happened to you. Can we put some story of yours in there? Because if it comes from somewhere natural, it, the, the, the humour will feel natural and people will be more engaged. Like, if you try to just stick a joke in, people will be like, well, where did that come from? Why have you done that? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's been interesting for me personally in having these conversations with people like yourself who are, who are professionals in comedy has been that uh, people have, Often in my friend circle, I said to me, "Boy, well, you should do, you should do some stand up and stuff like that." And, like, well, and I've always said, "Well, you know, I, I feel like I can be funny in um, personal environments. I can be funny with my friends, but I don't didn't really feel that that necessarily translates to being funny with people I don't know who've never met me before." Mm-hmm. And yet, so many people, much like yourself, say, "Well, you kind of already." Well, you can be that person who's making your friends laugh and um, and already having those hum- humorous thoughts and writing stuff down, which which I have done over the years. And that yeah. maybe it, maybe it could translate if if someone like me, thinking like me, are watching and thinking of giving stand up comedy a go. What what would you say to them? Uh, I would say my advice to anyone is start small. So start with five minutes. Uh, and your first five minutes will not be the last, will not look the same as when you end up with the end five minutes. So you start with your five minutes, you go and do your set, and then you'll you'll realise as you're doing your five minutes, I'm not getting as many laughs as I thought I would get, or there's a bit where I got a laugh where I wasn't expecting to get one, or where I was expecting to get one, I didn't get one. And you constantly hone that five until it's tight. And only when are you completely happy with your five and that you're getting regular good laughs all the way through do you then try and extend that to a 10 and you pretty much do the same process again so you have your five you extend it with perhaps another five or are there ideas within your five now that you want to expand on so you get to a 10 and then you do not leave that 10 minutes until that 10 minutes is tight and it is uh, and it's well rehearsed well practiced you've done it hundreds of times and then basically you just build on that until you get a longer and longer set um, but I think some people can try to do too much. Uh, and uh, that's when you get a lot of people doing 10, 15 minutes. When if you listen back to it, it's nine and a half minutes of pure waffle and a couple of titters. Like that's not a set. Yeah. Like, you need to bring it in, start small and be disciplined. Record your set. If you're doing a five minute record it, listen to it. Uh, like even if you type out your set word to word and you listen and go, wow, there's a laugh. There's a laugh, there's a laugh. Okay, so that's the setup, that's the punch, that's the joke. Do I need these words? How much, what's the least amount of information I can give the audience for them to be fully on board with this joke? 
I mean, that, that's great advice and, uh, and stuff that I will take to heart myself as well. And, and I appreciate that. For, for people who may be uh, thinking that they'd like to find out a bit more about you or find out when you start being again, maybe I'll be able to come and see you. Is, is there any places where people can check you out or maybe see some recorded action from some of your previous gigs? Yeah, so uh, I've got a website, www.mikecoxcomedy.com. Um, which has got my gig list. Well, it's got about two gigs listed on it at the minute, but uh, it normally has my gig list on it. And there's a couple of links to videos. I've got a YouTube channel. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. But I think if you just type Mike Cox Comedy and you'll find it. There's a few stand up clips, uh, a few funny videos that I did during lockdown when I was bored. Uh, and then I've got my Instagram page, which is comedy underscore Mike. People can see just pictures of gigs that I've been out or any sort of funny stuff on there mostly just me going look at me i'm doing this i'm a, I'm a real stand-up i promise <laughs> <laughs> well that's good stuff uh, I, I certainly will go and check that out myself and, and we'll make sure that that's all in the show notes for people who want to find out more about you as well um, i really appreciate uh, i really appreciate your time today it's been a really enjoyable conversation and, and a lot of value as well i got some really nice insights from you and and some nice perspectives from you too and, and i certainly hope that next time we're able to visit the uk without having to go into quarantine for two weeks that i'll yeah. <laughs> maybe be able to come and see you perform i would look forward to that but great thank you thank you thank, thank you for today and so are there are there any closing thoughts or anything that you would like to like to add to anything that you said today uh any closing thoughts um all right so uh so just yeah reiterating the the, the stand-up thing don't be afraid if you want to try it just try it uh you and if you want to be successful i think in public speaking as well not just stand up you can't be afraid of that heckler you can't be afraid of the time it doesn't go very well uh you can't be afraid of that that you know as anybody who does any public speaking, i think there is a time as, that you will die on your ass uh, and that is part of it and and i don't think you get to be a professional stand-up or a professional uh, public speaker without having that story in your locker of the time that it didn't go well like that, that part of the is, process. Yeah. yeah that is it you know um, it's part of your apprenticeship and uh, you don't want to be the person in the green room in 20 years time have you ever died no i've got no stories like, like what you have not tried hard enough you've not pushed yourself enough you've not pushed enough boundaries everybody dies i think that's a uh, good good uh, words to wrap things up on today mike cox thank you so much for the chat today it's been a real pleasure thank you yeah no problem enjoy talking to you thanks John. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to like and subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you're on Facebook, come and join the group. Speaking Influence is for anyone who wants to learn more about speaking and presentation skills. Also, get yourself a copy of my new ebook, The Five Key Beliefs of Bulletproof Business Speakers, available from my website, presentinfluence.com. If you'd like to know me or more about the show, visit the website or you can contact me directly, john at presentinfluence.com by email. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook in the Facebook group. LinkedIn is a really good place to connect with me as well. And I'll look forward to seeing you again very soon. In fact, next week, I will have an amazing young man as my guest, Lee Chambers. Lee will be sharing with us his story of how he overcame his fear of ever getting back up on a stage again. And he's now doing a great job as an inspirational speaker. So don't miss that. We'll see you again. Again for more very soon on Speaking of Influence.